in addition to the Book of Common Prayer, which is um, right beside you in your chair, there is uh, another official prayer book called the Book of Occasional Services. It's what clergy use um, to find services that are used only occasionally and therefore don't really need to be in the, in the prayer book, so the prayer book is not as big as an... And you find in the Book of Occasional Services, Blessings of Homes, and there's a whole section called um, The Blessing of Church Furniture. And when you look at it, it says if you want, you can use this series of, of responses and prayers and, 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 and holy water and do it that way. Or, it says, and I quote, in accordance with a venerable tradition, church furnishings can be consecrated by putting them to use. <laughs> and that means that just by sitting there, you've consecrated these new oak chairs. <laughs> and not just by sitting there, of course, but by kneeling there and putting your hands on them and scooting closer to your neighbor and sharing a hymnal on occasion and offering your heart to God and praying with tears of joy and sorrow and so forth. These chairs are put to good use and therefore consecrated. I do think it's important to, to take just a minute to pause and, and think about um, one of the reasons why the task force and arts and architecture and ultimately the vestry decided to, to switch to pews, in addition to the fact that the... Um, chairs that had served, the pews that had served us well for about 112 years were really in disrepair. But one of the reasons why they recommended switching chairs can be put to good use by being put away. Um, they can be stacked and removed and used for purpose, the space can be used for purposes other than simply worship. And that's a very traditional move, especially for cathedrals. Um, in England, especially, cathedral naves have been used throughout the centuries for everything from becoming a makeshift hospital in an emergency to even becoming shelter. In the so it's good to pause for a moment and think about how these chairs will be put to good use when they're put away. And may God bless all of the ways, the ways in which we can't even imagine right now, in which this nave will be used, not just for the worship of Almighty God, but for the love of neighbor, especially in times of emergency. We also give thanks for all the people who are involved in working really hard and praying really hard and consulting really widely in this community to make this change. It was a wonderfully led task force. Arts and architecture did great work. The vestry did great work. We're, we're thankful for all of them. We're very thankful for an anonymous um, member household um, of the parish that paid, gave one gift and paid for, for all of it. We're really grateful for that. Um, I'm grateful for the designer who's an architect named Terry Eason, who's done great work for, for decades in the Episcopal Church in places like Washington National Cathedral, and Terry designed these chairs. There's a great team of, um, of woodworkers at a wonderful place in Pennsylvania called New Holland Chair Fur Church Furniture.
And you know who I think I might be most grateful for is the logistical team and the truck driver. These chairs, we didn't announce this. We try to, my whole, basically my whole ministry is built on under promise, over deliver. I mean, that's really <clears throat> basically what I do every, try to do every week. But we, we, we knew that we were going to get them by Easter, which is April the 17th, and they arrived a month early. So thank God for their logistical team and their, their truck driver and everybody who worked hard um, to get them here. Thanks be to God for all of those people. And speaking of being put to good use, let's see if we can make some sense of this gospel reading, okay? And I want to back into it. Last Sunday, our youth minister, Christina Rutland, asked me to join her for her youth high school confirmation class because she said they had some questions. Remarkably, somehow, and this is another minor miracle, there are actually about 18 or 19 youth in that high school class. I don't know where Christina found all these people. I've never seen at St. John so many high school youth gathered. And, and I went, and she had taken their questions anonymously so that they would be precise and they didn't have to stand up and ask it in front of their peers. And the question, there were several, but the question that stood out more than all the others was this. Why is there badness in the world if God is good and loving? And just in case I didn't understand the question... that pointed to a sequential list of things like this, war, trauma, white supremacy, and so forth. Jesus would have really fit in well with our youth group. Because in this gospel reading, he's in the middle of a conversation or really probably a, a theological debate and you can tell, it doesn't give us the context. These readings also often don't give us the context. They're implied. You've got to read into them a little bit imaginatively. And you can tell that the argument is basically he's been told that bad things happen to bad people. Therefore, the cause of the bad things is the bad people. You can just tell. And the reason why you can tell is because Jesus cites these two odd and, and esoteric stories about terrible things happening. One is the story about the Roman governor Pilate mixing the blood of the Galileans with their own sacrifices, a horrific story that we historically don't know a whole lot about, or at least I don't. And then a second story about a, another tragedy, this one caused perhaps by a faulty tower that falls and, 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 and leads to the death of 18 people. And Jesus cites those two stories, and then ask a rhetorical question. And the answer to the rhetorical question is no. Were those people worse sinners than any of us? No. No. And the point here is that, that tragedies like that, whether caused by a vicious dictator or caused by a faulty tower or bridge or you name it, when those things happen, they're not a part of some divine system of reward and punishments. They just happen. 
They just happen. It's a partial answer to some of our most difficult questions. You've got to look elsewhere to find a more complete answer from Jesus. And you really need to look elsewhere and look, more importantly, at his own life, the way he lived, the cross at the end, and resurrection, really to see a kind of um, wordless answer to that question. We asked this question in the middle of Lent. We asked this question in the middle of our 40-day journey in the wilderness that mirrors Jesus' 40-day journey in the wilderness after his own baptism. And a part of what I think that means, that we're, we're imitating Jesus' own journey for 40 days, a part of what that means is that Jesus is our companion on this journey. He's been there. And what that means is that even more than being our teacher, and yes, Jesus is our teacher, and even more than being our storyteller, and of course, Jesus is our storyteller, but even more than that, Jesus is our companion who walks alongside us on this journey. And it seems to me as I think about my own life, and it seems as I think about other people's lives, that sometimes when we ask our hardest questions, when we have to walk the hardest, rockiest path, that what we need and desire more than anything else is not for someone to tell us what the answers are, but for someone to listen to us. Maybe even say, I I get it. To listen to us and say, I've been there before and, and let us keep talking and keep walking with us. And it seems to me that's what Jesus is doing with us throughout Lent and, of course, throughout all of our lives, even when it's not Lent. Last Sunday, after the 1030 service and after coffee hour, I went to the adult confirmation class. Um, I wasn't invited, but I'm the teacher, so I've got to go. And... I went to that one, and and these are people preparing for for baptism and confirmation and reception and such. And at some point in the midst of class, one of the persons who's preparing for for baptism is a preschool teacher. And I can't remember how this came up, but but she just all of a sudden was sharing a story about something she'd heard recently that was really encouraging to her in the midst of some hard moments as a teacher, especially in these last two years. God bless our teachers. And she said as a preschool teacher, what someone said was this, that really had stuck with her. When you're holding the hand of a three-year-old, you're the most important person in the world. When you're holding the hand of a three-year-old, you're the most important person in the world. And that's what Jesus is doing in Lent with us, it seems to me, walking alongside us and quietly and even silently reminding us that our questions matter, that he gets it, and that we're not alone.